morning. I don't know if you guys know it or not, but in real time, this weekend, Doug and Beth Wright are in Africa uh, with their two um, kids, uh, Rachel and Daniel, and they are um, passing out for the first time and celebrating the release of the New Testament translation in the Logo language. Isn't that cool? I didn't intend to start here, but I was just sitting here worshiping, just thinking that literally right now, they are over there, this very weekend, releasing that. It's been a 25-year journey that Doug and Beth have been on. And I want to say just a couple of words, because if they were standing here with us, I probably couldn't say it. But I have the privilege of um, riding road bikes with Doug. Every couple of weeks, we go and ride. And uh, we usually ride down from his house to River Road. And he's 60, and I'm 35, and I have trouble keeping up with him. So uh, that's one thing. Um, But as we go, we often pass by the house that they sold in the late 80s or early 90s. And as we've passed by it, I ask him, tell me your story. Tell me what's happened. And, you know, he was a, um, he worked at DuPont. Um, He was an engineer out there. Great job, great home, beautiful cars, great trajectory. And he and Beth came to the point where they sold it all and went after expanding the kingdom. And they moved up to, um, I believe, somewhere in Canada, maybe Toronto, I'm not sure if that's accurate, and spent four or five years in language school, learning various languages before they journeyed to the Congo in Africa. And this weekend is the culmination of that 25-year journey, and Myrtle Grove has supported them every step of the way. And I just want us to take a moment and just honor the Lord. There's many, many people in our house, and as we are in a revitalizing work, I love where Pastor Steve has been preaching and Pastor Jim, and as we are sort of revitalizing our house, it is important to take a few moments and celebrate the victories along the way. I think of Doug, or uh, let's see, the crafts. Where are you guys? Are you, you usually sit up here. Are they down there somewhere? They just stepped out. Okay, well, the crafts, they're another family. They gave eight to ten years of their lives on the mission field. You know, Myrtle Grove has these beautiful, beautiful roots of people who give. And we have been a sending church, and I believe God is sort of bringing us back to that. And that's sort of some of my um, sermon for this morning. I'm going to sort of gear it around there. But as we shift gears, um, I want to mention one of the greatest tragedies, in my opinion, in history. Now, not an atrocity. There's lots of war crimes. There's lots of atrocities. There's lots of things that we could talk about. But one of the greatest tragedies in history is that the nation of Israel spent so many years preparing and waiting and watching for the Messiah to come. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, We tend to almost villainize them in modern Christianity. But they were very much like us. Their hearts wanted to see God move in their day. The teachers of the law of Moses, they wanted to see Messiah come. They wanted to see the kingdom of God established on the earth. And yet when he came, because it did not fit in their set of expectations and presumptions, they missed him. One of my favorite authors, his name is R.T. Kendall. I'm going to read a quote of his. 
I uh, emailed him about six months ago, and he emailed me back. I couldn't believe it. I called Abby and was like, you won't believe it. R.T. Kendall emailed me back. He's one of my heroes, though, because he is a great theologian. He was a pastor at Westminster Chapel in London for 25 years, and he's one of the great theologians that marries the word tradition and the spirit tradition, and he brings them together, and he maintains that the greatest revival in our nation and even in the world will happen when we see those two traditions join together. This is what R.T. writes in his book, When God Shows Up. little book, easy read. If you're looking for something to stir your heart, I'd encourage you to grab it. But here's what he writes. The big surprise for me, that's R.T., was to discover the unexpected ways by which God not only gets our attention, but also manifests himself. If God doesn't have our attention, we could completely miss seeing his glory right before our eyes, and we would not even know he had shown up. You could never have convinced the chief priests of Israel 2,000 years ago that Messiah would appear before their eyes and they would not recognize him. But they missed him. You could never have told the Pharisees that they would miss God's Messiah, but they did. I fear many sincere Christians are in the same boat. We have all our fears and prejudices. And if what God is up to doesn't cohere with our comfort zone, we usually miss Him entirely and feel no pain. Lord Jesus, as we as a church take an authentic assessment of where we are and where we're going, as we celebrate the victories, Lord, as we are honored and celebrate people like Doug and Beth Wright who have absolutely given their lives, Lord, we ask that You would let us be a church who senses and sees and doesn't miss a move of Your Spirit. Lord, we humble our hearts before You, and we say it is all about the great name of Jesus. And Lord, we ask as we posture ourselves to move into the next 5, 10, 15 years, that we would be a church who is more concerned about our sending capacity than we are with our seating capacity. That we would be a church who is more ready to give and to send than we are to hoard and to try to get people into our doors. Father, move on us as a congregation. We praise you, Jesus. Amen. Today we're going to look at three scriptures, more scriptures than I typically like to look at in a sermon, but we're going to look at three scriptures, and I want to look at sort of the life of John the Baptist, a scripture foretelling John the Baptist, John the Baptist coming, and then something that Jesus said about John the Baptist. And I want to look at it specifically because John the Baptist was one of the few people who when Messiah came, what did he do? He saw him. He recognized him. And I think there's a few things that we as a church, we as people, can sort of look at, learn from, and glean from. And and just to probably be vulnerable with you all, I have been posturing my heart going, Lord Jesus, I want to be a person that sees and senses what you're doing. Not trying to get you on board with what Michael's doing. I want to be on board with what you are doing. So turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. If you don't know where Malachi is, that is okay. It is the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, Go to Matthew, if you know where that is, and go left a few pages. And you'll come to Malachi chapter 3. 
you don't have a Bible, there's some in the pew in front of you. If you don't like those, pull out your smartphone and look it up there. A couple statements about Malachi. Um, interestingly, uh, I love this book because it is the very... Uh, it's the conclusion of the Old Testament canon of Scripture. It is the very last thing God spoke to His people coming out of the Old Testament. And then there's about 400 years of silence before the Messiah comes on the scene, before John the Baptist comes on the scene. So this is a, a, just a very, very poignant book. Um, Malachi was probably a preacher's kid in our modern-day vernacular. He was, um, he was a Levite, that would be the, the Hebrew term, and he grew up in the temple, he grew up around the temple, he grew up serving uh, those who assisted in worship, and therefore he saw probably all of the abuses in the temple, both by the people and by the priests. And I would say to you all that that is probably what prompted a lot of his writings. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this today, but it really, really is an amazing book that I would also encourage you to jump into. But let's look at Malachi chapter 3, uh, verse 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. My messenger, my messenger. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Now, we got a messenger and we got a Lord. Who's the Lord? Christ Jesus, that's right. We know that. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Who's the messenger? John the Baptist, that's exactly right. So Malachi has no idea probably what he's writing, but through a prophetic utterance he is beginning to say this is what is going to happen. Now I want you to skip with me uh, to the end of chapter 4, the last two verses of chapter 4 in Malachi. It's verses 5 and verses 6. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you. This is verse 5 in chapter 4. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. It's wild to me that these are the last words of the canon of Scripture recorded in the Old Testament. This is the way. These are God's final words before a 400-year period of, of, of what we know to be or, or, or think to be silence before John the Baptist comes on the scene. So, turn with me now to, to uh, John chapter 1. So you're going to go to the right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then find John chapter 1. I want to set the table here for a minute because you have the entire nation of Israel watching and waiting for the release of the Messiah. They're watching. They are looking. They are waiting. When is Jesus going to come? They didn't know His name was Jesus. When is Messiah going to come? How is He going to show up? Many people in the day probably assumed that the Messiah was going to come riding in a chariot at the front of an army and overthrow Rome. Probably about what they expected, give or take. So they're looking for this powerful, powerful king sort of to arise in the, in the stead of King David and come in and, and take this place. And instead you have Messiah who comes and establishes a kingdom of the heart. Totally different than what the nation of Israel is looking for. Again, one of the great sadnesses to me in all of history, is that the nation of Israel missed the Messiah. Now, I don't think that story's over. 
Okay, I believe God is at work and he will continue to work and I'm going to park that over here. That's not the topic of my sermon today. But let's pick up reading in John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Now this is John the Baptist. This is not John the author of this book. The author of this book is John the Beloved, one of Jesus' disciples. And here we're talking about John the Baptist. I know that's a little confusing. Um, Verse 20, he did not fail to confess, but he confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. I love this guy already. He's just straight up. Nope, I'm not him. I am not the Messiah. Verse 2, they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answers, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourselves? And then I love this too, because here goes John. He's going to quote the Old Testament. He's going to quote the words of the prophet Isaiah. John replied, verse 23, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So here John's going to answer, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one who you do not know. He is one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and John looks at Christ Jesus. Now get this, the entire nation of Israel most likely waiting for the chariot and the army and let's overthrow Rome and the whole bit. And up walks Jesus Really simple guy, carpenter, no frills, no fluff, no grandiosity. And John looks at him and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What was it that made John recognize the Messiah when no one else did? What was it that made him sense a move of God when everyone else uh, didn't? I'm going to pull out a, a whiteboard here. This is actually our youth pastor, Matt George. Matt, wave at us. This is his whiteboard that he uses with his youth. And I asked him last week if I could use it because I wanted to draw something. Many times, moves of God or moves of the Spirit um, look like... Uh, it, it, this, is in, this is Michael's mind, so just you know, bear with me a second. But look like um, waves. That's a wave... And then we have another wave. If you're sitting too far back there and can't see that, just these are they're, they're two little waves, very simple little drawing. Um, I'm a surfer, love to surf. Would like to be a better surfer than I am, but I love it nonetheless. And uh, you can look at many moves of God and go, man, it, it, it resembles a wave because there's a build of a move of God. There's sort of a, a it reaches a climax, and then there's a dissipation, and then another move of God begins. Is that fair? I could take you through. We're not going to do it this morning, but I could. We could look at the Azusa Street revival and talk about, you know, how it built up, how it came to a climax, how it, you know, sort of crescendoed, came down, and then another move of God followed after that. We could even look at church life this way. Churches tend to rise, come to a, a point, and then they have to rise again. 
We could talk about the Jesus movement in the 1970s. We could talk about the Welsh revival in what, 1904, 1905. Different moves of God over the generations tend to sort of come in these kind of waves. As I was studying this, um, I was also reviewing our history. I love our church. I love Myrtle Grove. And I was looking back at our history, and um, I think under Horace and Pastor Steve and Pastor Jim, here's Jim over here, when you guys were in your 30s, um, the, uh, the slogan or the vision of the church at that time, to my understanding, is equipping the saints for their work of ministry. I just, I've been meditating on that, just thinking about it, meditating on that, thinking about sort of how even Myrtle Grove as a church sort of rose and affected our larger community. And, and that vision statement that you guys sort of worked with, with Horace, um, actually comes out of Ephesians, to my understanding. You don't have to turn here, but I'm going to read it really quick. I just think it's powerful. Uh, this is Ephesians 4, verse 11. So Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. A lot of times in our current culture, church is more about come, you know, be a part, we're going to attract you, it's fun, it's light. But what was different about this church was we're going to equip you for your work of ministry. We're going to serve, we're going to go, we're going to send. I love that. Verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up uh, into him who is the head, that is Christ, from the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I love that. I love the roots of Myrtle Grove. I love um, uh, sort, of, sort of who we are as a church. And I actually, I, I can't give you exact numbers. I wish I could. But I began to look at the influence of Myrtle Grove over the decades in Wilmington. I actually did some research where I looked at other churches and I dug into who were their elders and who were their board members. Guess what I found? I found many elders, many board members in our city passed through Little Myrtle Grove at some point. Fascinated. And I began to look at the different churches that came out of Myrtle Grove. Praise God, we ought to always send people. In fact, as I look to the future and go, man, in the next five, ten years, whoever we become as a church, I hope we lose at least half of our population every year because we're sending people to plant churches. We're expanding the kingdom. That we would be a church who is more concerned about sending capacity rather than seeding capacity. Man, let's make a difference. And I love our history here. I got so fired up looking at what Myrtle Grove has done over the years. There's a number of parachurch organizations. Many, many, many that you all were part of. You're still on the boards. One of them is a school down here called Myrtle Grove Christian School. And there's another school back there, Coastal Christian High School. The influence that this church has had over the decades is absolutely phenomenal to me. There's been churches planted out of here. Some of them were church splits. 
maybe not as pleasant as we would have liked or hoped. Some of them were church plants where we sent them, go, be blessed. But regardless, the kingdom of God was expanded. That's good stuff. That's fruit in my book. And I would rather be sitting in a church that is more about sending than it is about growing and accumulating numbers. Let's make a difference. Let's be a church. Let's continue to be a church, because we always have been, that is impacting the culture and the city around us. I'm so excited about what God has in store for Myrtle Grove. Just thrilled. Okay. As I'm saying that, let me... um, let me also say, um, this is kind of an aside, but I think it's worth saying. It's been three or four years ago, I was sitting backstage, um, there's a little hallway back there, and I was sitting back there praying with the worship band, and I think I was just doing announcements that Sunday, I can't really remember. Um, but I'm a, I'm a landscaper by trade. I love landscaping, I love dirt. Um, and uh, so as part of that, we, I, don't, I don't dig wells, but I subcontract with people who would dig a well and then um, you know, put an irrigation system off of that well. So I'm sitting back there and I'm praying with the worship band, not even thinking about any of this, and I hear a little whisper of God somewhere in the back of my head, in the back of my heart, and he said, the aquifer is good. The wells are sucking sand. Dig new wells. The aquifer is good. The wells are sucking sand, dig new wells. I'm like, the aquifer is that big thing underground. It's the big, big mass of fresh water that you tap into when you dig a well. Wells, after some years, just start sucking sand. I don't know why that happens. It just sometimes happens. There is no rhyme or reason. It just happens. It doesn't mean that the aquifer of fresh water that that well is tapping into has gone bad. That also happens. The aquifer can go bad. It can dry up. You've got to dig a new well because of that. Not what God said. The aquifer's good. Dig new wells. I'm so encouraged by that. I've carried that sort of in my heart. So, <clears throat> as we look at this, this sort of wave, you know, we, we could probably um, put Myrtle Grove, I don't know, I, maybe the, you know, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure. But there's been a beautiful... Uh, culmination of the Spirit of God here in this house and the influence that we've had across Wilmington. We agree on that? Yeah, it's awesome. Yes. Now, the challenge. Here's our challenge as a church. When we've had a group of people who were on the front end of one move of the Spirit, and that natural wave of the Spirit comes to an end, and then another move of the Spirit, an upwelling of the Spirit begins to happen again, Guess what the people who are on the front end of this move of the Spirit are expecting? The same thing. So we have blinders on. I was sitting in my office, uh, it's been three weeks ago now. There's a 17-year-old guy in the community. Um, He sometimes goes to church here, much like most millennials. Let me come and let me go, you know. (laughs) I'm a millennial, I can say that. Um... But he, he comes in and he meets with me periodically. He's asked me to mentor him a little bit. And he's sitting in my office and he comes in and he asks me advice and things and whatever. And he goes, I want to get all the pastors together in Wilmington. And he starts rattling off the you know, ten most probably biggest and influential churches in Wilmington. I'm going to get them together and it's going to be awesome. And I looked at him and I went, no way, dude. And it, no sooner did it roll out of my mouth, I went, be careful, Michael. Be careful. Just because that's not your experience does not mean that the Spirit of God is not calling this young man to get the leaders in Wilmington together. 
I, I took this moment and I went, Woo, Lord Jesus, will you forgive me for my presumption? I didn't do this out loud. I went, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me for my presumption because I've seen people in my day try to get all the pastors in the city together and it never worked very well. I think it's God's heart, though. So where I hit the gas with him and said, oh no, God doesn't do that, I backed it right up, put the car in reverse, backed it up and said, that's a very challenging call. Let me tell you my experience and let me help equip you for how you might go about doing this. You see how I flipped it? But I already, I'm 35, and I'm already going, I've seen moves of the Spirit, and then I have the very same presumption that the next move of the Spirit is going to look like the last. Here's the nation of Israel looking for King David to arise, the Messiah to come and set up this beautiful kingdom of God. And in walks Jesus. Can anything good come from Jesus' hometown? A carpenter. Someone who works with his hands. And Jesus doesn't call the great scholars, the great Pharisees, the great scribes, the great teachers of the law. He goes down to where the, the, the boats are docked and He calls the scruffy fishermen and the landscapers. See, God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Myrtle Grove, we as a church are one of the great influential churches in the city of Wilmington. I am not willing to stand by and let us stop being that. I want to see us continue to be that sending church. The question is, and it is a question, as a new move of God as an upwelling of the Spirit of God begins to move, can we embrace, can we see and sense what God's doing? I'm right here on my knees with you, going, Lord Jesus, don't let me miss God. Don't let me miss you, because I have a set of presumptions and expectations about how a move of God should look, how it should appear, what it's going to look like, what kind of building it's going to be in. I was so moved by Pastor Steve last week. I'll call him Dad in this case. I was so moved that when, when Dad got up here last week and talked about the, the New Testament church, Acts chapter 2, and these, young, these communities of believers coming together and the vibrant life that they experienced. And then the church gets institutionalized. You had a word for it. Cathedral Christianity, I think it was. I don't know if that's right. Um, cathedral Christianity. And, and, and we sort of lost some of that. And then, and then Christianity gets lost. And then they're, they're coming back to a, a, a move of relationships and discipleship in sort of a New Testament era. I'm so moved by that because we had our senior pastor get up here and go, we don't have it all figured out, but we are sensing and we are watching and we are looking for that next move of God because we want to be a part of that. I want to keep reading. In verse chapter, I'm in uh, verse 30 of John chapter 1. This is the one I meant when I said, now this is John the Baptist speaking, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I love the revelation of John the Baptist. Here comes a guy who's going to come after me, but he's greater than me because he existed before me. John just gets it. 
I love this verse 31 too. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. This is so cool. John did not know him. Now, John actually knew the person of Jesus because uh, Elizabeth and Mary were related. But John did not know that he was the Messiah. It says it right there. But God had told John, look at that, the end of verse 33, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one on who is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify this is God's chosen one. What made John the Baptist see what no one else could see? How did that happen? What kind of posture was in John's heart that he was able and willing to do that? This was a guy who wore um, camel hair. They actually looked up sackcloth, because in the Old Testament people would put on sackcloth and, and roll in ashes when they wanted to fast and cry out to the voice of God. Sackcloth is made of like goat hair. John the Baptist wore camel hair, symbolic of calling a nation to repentance. He ate honey, probably symbolic of the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He also ate locusts. That's fascinating to me. I was in Africa for a, a summer, three months one time, two, two months and some days, dri- driving safari trucks, and I ate mapani worms. They were like caterpillars. And they put them in a little fry pan and they fried them crispy and put some salt on them and they tasted a little like popcorn. But I can't imagine my entire diet being mapani worms and honey. But here you got John the Baptist eating locusts and honey, wearing camel hair, posturing himself. And by the way, that locust, I think, is probably a, a, maybe a flashback or a, a, a reminiscent of the great miracles that took place when Moses delivered, people, or delivered the Israelites from bondage in Egypt. Really fascinating when you look at the life of John the Baptist. So here's where I want us to go, and uh, this is going to be our final passage of Scripture. But turn to Matthew 11. So you're going to go back to the left in your Bible. Matthew 11. And we're going to look at a few words that Jesus spoke about John the Baptist. We're going to start in verse 1 and we're going to go through verse uh, 15. So this is Jesus speaking. Uh, Let me give you some context here. John the Baptist is now in prison. Um, John was ultimately beheaded by Herod. If you know that, gave everything to advance the gospel of Christ Jesus. So John's in prison. Jesus has just begun his ministry. He's just called uh, many of his disciples. And here we pick it up in verse 11, or uh, chapter 11, verse 1 of Matthew. <clears throat> After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or, we sh- or should we expect someone else? So John's in prison, and John has what I would sort of suggest to you is probably a crisis of faith. I'm giving my life for this. I'm probably going to die on this cause. Is this really the Messiah? Are you really Jesus? So he sends his disciples to go ask Jesus. I love when passages, uh, when the Scripture contains things like this because I go, yes, John the Baptist had a crisis of faith too. There's hope for Michael. 
There's hope for all of us. John's in prison, and he's going, is this really the Messiah? The other thing I think is probably interesting here is he probably had similar expectations in his mind about what Messiah would do and be when he came on the earth. And he's sitting in prison, he's potentially going to die, and he knows it. And he's wondering, this doesn't look like the Messiah that I thought was going to come. I'm scared. Have I given my life for nothing? This is all Michael's conjecture, by the way. You know that. I'm going to send my disciples out and ask. So his disciples go to Jesus, and here's what happened. Verse 4. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 3. Let's, I think it was verse 3. To him, uh, so John's disciples go to Jesus, and they ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Verse 4, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. So Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage. I'm not positive where that is. I should have looked it up. But that's an Old Testament passage for telling Jesus. And he's saying, John, be at peace. Be at peace. I'm the Messiah. And you can tell I'm the Messiah because of the signs and wonders that are happening and following my ministry. He didn't contemn John the Baptist. He didn't get angry at him. He didn't say, you have little faith. He said, hey man, take heart, take hope. I am the Messiah. I'm establishing a kingdom of the heart. All right, now, let's look at what Jesus says about John the Baptist. This is beautiful. <clears throat> Here's what Jesus has said. What did you go out of the wilderness to see? So he's saying to the people, what did you guys go check out? Why, why did you want to go see John? What was so special about him? Was it a reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? Was it a man dressed in fine clothes? Remember, John's wearing camel hair, super uncomfortable, itchy, scratchy. No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one on whom it was written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before me. Where do we start this morning? Malachi 3.1. Jesus just quotes it. Just quotes it. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom is greater than he. What made John the Baptist the greatest? Why would Jesus even make a statement like that? Was it because he had such courage to sense and see that move of God when no one else saw it? He was willing to take a risk. He gave his life to advance the gospel of Christ. He was the forerunner. Verse 12, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subject to violence and violent people have been raiding it. That might bother some of you. You could say um, forcefully advancing. That would be another way to translate that. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. If you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah. See, Jesus is saying, this is John the Baptist who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's where we started today in Malachi. Whoever has ears, let them hear. See, the fire 
to be a great doer in the kingdom of God comes from being soaked in the fuel of what was done on the cross. God has such a call on our house. God has such a call on this church. And He has good things coming. The question is, each of us as individuals, and then us as a corporate church, is can we and are we willing to sense and see when God is moving in a neighbor, in a friend, in someone at the office, in a way that we don't typically expect? Are we willing to see when God's moving in an unusual way in our son or daughter, in our spouse, in our family? See, this is bigger than just church. This applies very much to your life. Is taking, sort of looking at life and looking at your experience and going, where is the Spirit of God and what is He doing now in my life? I don't like this circumstance. I hate this circumstance. What if God's using it? What if God is advancing His kingdom? What if He is helping you take on the character of Christ in the middle of that? See, finding Christ, finding what He is doing in the middle of our lives is often the challenge. It's hard. It's hard sometimes. I have a quote that I want to put up. Jim, will you put that quote up on our screen? In 1994, R.T. Kendall, as a pastor of the Westminster uh, chapel in London, England, issued a declaration, their entire church. It was a petition is what he called it, but it was much like a declaration. And the entire church stood and they declared it together. I want to read it and then I'm going to ask you to declare it with me. We pray for the manifestation of the glory of God in our midst, along with an ever-increasing openness in us to the manner in which He chooses to turn up. Isn't that good? Here's what I'd like us to do. I'm going to ask you to stand in just a second, and we're going to declare this together. And then I'm going to pray a prayer. And then Pastor Jim is going to come, and he's going to administer communion. So would you stand with me? And as a church, I'd like to ask us to declare this. Before the heavenlies, before each other, before Wilmington. You ready? One, two, three. We pray for the manifestation of of the glory of God in our midst, along with an ever-increasing openness in us to the manner in which He chooses to turn up. Jesus, as we all stand here, we humble ourselves before You. In church, I want to ask us to do something else. Our eyes are closed. We're, we're postured, looking to Christ. I want to ask you to turn your physical body towards one of the outer walls. Turn towards an outer wall. Lord Jesus, would you commission us this day to be a church that is more concerned with those who are outside of our walls? Lord, would you commission us to be a church that continues to advance the gospel on the kingdom? to advance the kingdom of God, advance the gospel on the earth like Doug and Beth are doing even today in the Congo. Father, we celebrate the history of Myrtle Grove. We celebrate the successes of the past and we posture ourselves towards the future. Lord Jesus, would You move in our hearts. And Father, we choose to shift our focus from our own preferences 
Lord, we choose to shift our focus from our own self-interests. And we choose to look outward, God. Lord, You've commissioned this church to impact, to continue to impact the city of Wilmington. You've commissioned this church to continue to shift the history of little Wilmington. And Father, we agree and we ask that You would allow us to be open to the manner that You choose to move in our hearts and in our city. Lord, in the 1970s and 1980s, Myrtle Grove was out of the box. It was ahead of its time. It led something that other people looked at and scratched their head and went, can that be God? And it was, and it was good. And Lord, here we are in 2016. And as You stir up another upwelling of Your Spirit, another movement of people in this day, would You allow us to see what is truly Yours? What is truly of Your Spirit? Would You allow us to be like John the Baptist and recognize the Messiah when He walks in, even if it doesn't fulfill our assumptions and our expectations? God, we humble our hearts before You. Lord, as we take communion, would You speak to us? Would You whisper to us? Would You allow us to drink deeply of Your great grace and Your unending pursuit of us as Your bride? as your people. You can turn back towards the front. Lord, as we continue in prayer just for a moment, remind us, Jesus, that you didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give your life as a ransom for many. You are postured, Lord, looking out, not serving yourself, but serving others. Lord, thank you that you can change hearts today. Today, my heart, our hearts, we ask that you change our hearts. Create in us clean hearts, Lord. Do a new work in us. Posturous, not serving ourselves, but serving others, Lord. Come to serve and not to be served. Lord, I think of Isaac, a black Muslim who was going through the marketplace in Africa. And he heard a little group of a few Christians singing the song, What can wash away my sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He couldn't get it out of his mind, his heart. He wrestled with it. He tried to. But eventually, Lord, you converted him because a few people were singing a song about a truth that is real. Lord, we celebrate that truth today that the blood of Jesus can and will wash away our sin. Can you say amen to that today? Amen. That we lay hold of it by faith, not through our merit, but trusting in the merits 
of the only one who could do this, the blood of Jesus. So we ask, Lord, the question, what can wash away our sins today? And we answer it by saying, nothing. There is nothing but the blood of Jesus, which we're going to receive by faith. After supper, Jesus took the bread and broke it and said, This is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, after supper, He took the cup and He poured it out and said, This is the new covenant that I make with you through the shedding of my blood. Take and drink it, each one of you, in remembrance of me. Would the elders come?
done for us that we might reach out and do this redemptive work as co-laborers with you. Take and eat.
faithfulness. It's a mission, the love of God shared sacrificially with the world. We ask that you'd give us eyes to see, 
what you're doing in this day and to join you in it. And Father, if there are any here today, don't leave with a heavy heart or a need. The elders will be in the front and prayer ministers. Take an opportunity to give that to the Lord and agree with someone in faith. You could do that right there where you're sitting in the pew. And we ask, Lord, that you would minister, though, according to your words. And we ask, Lord, that all that we do and say would be to the glory of the one who was willing to serve and not be served. We give him all praise for the goodness of the Lord. And all God's people said together, Amen. We ask the elders that they would spread out. And if you've got a prayer need today, feel free to come forward and receive prayer. If not, would you stand and let's greet one another and share God's love as you leave. Perhaps introduce yourself to someone you didn't meet on your way in.